Good morning. Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robert. Nice job on those city names, buddy. They're tough. I don't just ask anybody to do stuff like that. <laughs> anyway, good morning, uh, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. A special welcome to all of you who are visiting with us this morning, no doubt because of the child dedication. So glad to be able to have you with us as well. Uh, we are glad that all of you have joined us in worship this morning. My name is Dave Hahn. I am one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is my privilege this morning to be able to open God's Word with and for you. So I think it's fair to say that our world has been changing faster and perhaps more radically than usual as of late. That statement is up for debate, of course, and it's somewhat relative, I suppose, but can we agree that there are prevalent issues and concerns, both moral and political, being argued over now that were not as big of a concern or debated as heavily just five years ago or ten years ago? Issues of race and of gender and of education, political allegiances, and so much more. And while these issues can be complicated, I think that they all have at least one thing in common. They are all centered around identity. Mankind has an insatiable desire to know who they are and to identify with someone or with something. In order to give our lives purpose and meaning, we strive for those things. We tend to build our identities around our relationships, or maybe what we do on a daily basis, or our political leanings, or even our biology. But today, even certainties like biology are being put aside for the sake of preference and creating an identity unto our own liking. And when we decide for ourselves who we are and what matters most, regardless of how God has knit us together or of what he says is true, we discover that our self-made identities are unable to satisfy us and that they do not last. And we feel threatened at worst because our identity is being threatened or we feel lost because we don't actually know who we are. But when our identity is built on who God says we are, what God says is ultimately true of us in Christ, and what he says matters most, we are untouchable. And we're free from whatever may threaten or discourage us. And that is where today's text begins. So today we're beginning a new series in the book of 1 Peter. And we'll be looking at the first two introductory verses before we do really a deep dive into it over the next few months. 
Specifically, today we want to answer these questions. Who wrote this letter? To whom was it written? When was it written? And why was it written? In verse 1, we get a very clear answer as to who wrote it, right? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and within the four Gospels, it is Peter who speaks most often, for better or for worse. And of the 12, it is really Peter who we know the most about, including who his father was, who his brother was, his marital status, and his occupation. We don't know that about all of the other disciples. And he was not just one of the 12 disciples. He was one of the three, as we learn, of Jesus' most inner circle. And even within the three, we come to discover that Peter was a leader. Apart from Christ, he was a fisherman. But in Christ, he became a fisher of men. Apart from Christ, he was simply Simon. In Christ, he became Peter, the rock. In one moment, he was blessed by God, having received special revelation as to who Jesus was. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for man has not revealed these things to you, but my Father in heaven. That's what Jesus said of Peter. And in the next moment, one page over, he became a mouthpiece for Satan and a subject of his deception. At the Last Supper, Peter claimed solidarity with Jesus unto the point of death. But mere hours later, he vehemently denied three times that he even knew Jesus. He preached unforgettable sermons throughout the book of Acts and was sent primarily to his Jewish brethren while Paul was sent primarily to the Gentiles. And throughout the book of Acts, we see Peter repeatedly imprisoned and persecuted until finally, according to church tradition, Peter was crucified, but not like his Lord. Peter, believing himself to be unworthy of dying in a similar manner to Jesus, asked to be crucified upside down. So that's what Scripture and church history says about Peter, and there is a lot that I left out, obviously. But the question is, is how did Peter see himself? What did he see as the core of his identity? We see it in verse 1 of this, the first of his two letters. Above all else, Peter saw himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's how he introduced himself. And an apostle is different than a disciple. Every apostle was a disciple, but not every disciple is an apostle. According to Acts 1, the apostles were the 12 men charged by God in Christ to establish the foundation of the church of Christ on earth. That's who the apostles are. With one addition. The Apostle Paul, who was later called by Jesus himself to be an apostle and was later approved as an apostle by the original 12 that Christ had chosen. 
So Peter, understanding his identity, firm in his identity in Christ, wrote this epistle to a specific audience, or audiences as we'll see. Continuing in verse 1, he writes, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That, my friends, is who this letter was written to. Did you see the first word? The elect. To those who are elect. The idea of a person being elect or chosen by God has been and remains a contentious one in Christianity. There may be some of you, even as you hear those words, push back a little bit. Many Christians do not like or subscribe to the idea that it is God who chooses us, not the other way around. Because it makes us the passive agents in the work of salvation, and that pushes against our pride and our desire to be in control. But God's Sovereign choosing is not a new idea, nor, by the way, is it a denominational one. Rather, it is how God has done things from the outset. Bible teacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said it well. He said, today there has been so much emphasis upon decision, receiving, yielding, being willing, and giving ourselves that salvation is regarded almost exclusively in terms of our activity. Whereas the emphasis in Scripture is always on the other side, the Godward side, and that we are saved ultimately in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of all the people on earth, God established a covenant with one man, Abraham. And from Abraham, the nation of Israel was chosen and blessed by God. But that had nothing to do with Israel. Rather, it had everything to do with God and his sovereign election. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. I'll read it for you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Listen, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Did you catch that? So why did God choose Israel according to these verses? Because he chose them. Why did God love Israel? Because he loved them. And that means that Israel does not get to boast except in the grace and the mercy of God upon them, like you and I. And we see God's sovereign election continue into the ministry of Jesus where the 12 disciples among many 
were chosen. And of the 12, those three who were closest to Jesus. Listen to Jesus speak to the 12 specifically in John chapter 15, verses 15 through 16. No longer do I call you servants, said Jesus, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. As one more example, we see the Apostle Paul speak to God's election of the saints in Romans 9, addressing many of our our own modern-day concerns with this profound idea, this profound doctrine. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Speaking of his election, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So while the idea, my friends, of God choosing some for salvation and others for damnation may push against our sensibilities, the created does not get to argue with the creator. The clay does not get to question the potter. And the fallen and the sinful, that's us, ought not question the holy and the eternal, that's God. Friends, to the degree that we, like the Romans that Paul addressed, believe God's election to be unfair, we forget that we don't really want what's fair or just. We don't really want what's fair or just. Because what is fair and what is just for all of us is death and hell. That's what we all deserve for our sin, our betrayal, and our treason against God and his kingdom. And is that what we want? Do we want fairness? Do we want justice? I think we want grace. I think we want mercy. We also forget that our view of things is incredibly flawed and extraordinarily limited. And we have also forgotten, my friends, that we are ultimately spiritually dead. Do you remember Good Friday? We are spiritually dead and that we are incapable of choosing God apart from his call. Dead people aren't good at doing anything or responding to anything. Bible teacher and scholar A.W. Pink wisely said it this way. For as the result of the fall, man has lost all desire and will unto that which is good. 
and that even the elect themselves have to be made willing. We have lost all our desire and our will unto that which is good, and that even to the degree that we are elect, it is God who made us willing. So salvation, my friends, is not a matter of justice or fairness, but of grace. And God in his grace and God in his mercy spared us from what we do deserve and has abundantly given us what we do not. He called us out of our spiritual graves, brought about by the fall, brought about by sin, and he has called us instead into the newness of life and righteousness in his Son. And if it were not God who were responsible for all of that, he would cease to be sovereign. And thus, he would cease to be God. Because if we're the initiators and he's the responder, guess who God is? Like the recipients of Peter's letter, through the faith that God has given us to believe in his son, we have become the elect and the chosen of God. That is who the recipients of this letter were, and that is who we are too. So do a Bible word study on the terms elect or chosen and be fascinated in the context that they are used in and its widespread use throughout Scripture. It's everywhere. Now, in addition to being God's elect, Peter also calls his readers exiles. At the time of Peter's writing, the city of Rome had been burned. The Roman Empire was bigger than just the city of Rome, but the city of Rome in particular had been burned. And Emperor Nero, looking for someone or someones to blame, blamed Christians, leading to the severe persecution and ultimate dispersion of the early church, including the places that Peter mentions and is writing to here in verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And this letter went to each of those areas, each of those churches, each of those groups of people. All of those areas had received this letter to be encouraged by it. And in calling them exiles, Peter is addressing believers who, like us, are temporary residents in a foreign land. And this was now true of those who Peter wrote to in a national sense, in that the persecution of the church had caused believers to leave their homelands, but that is likely not true of any of us. But more than that, though, Peter called them exiles or pilgrims in a spiritual sense. And that idea is very, very true of all of us. As one early Christian writing put it, Christians inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents of it. They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all the disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land is a foreign land. They pass their days upon the earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. If you are in Christ, your home and your hope is not in or on this earth, but in heaven. 
So do not find it strange, my friends, or disturbing when this world does not make sense to you. When this world disappoints you or when it persecutes you for your faith in either big or small ways. Do not find it strange. After all, you and I were not made for this world, but for an eternal one. Continuing in verse 2, we find Peter adding to the identity that he laid before his readers. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They and we are elect and we are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are elect and we are exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The foreknowledge of God means that who God would choose, what would happen to them, and when it would happen was predetermined by God before the foundation of the world, before any of it happened. Friends, God has foreknowledge, and God is sovereign both in our being chosen for salvation, that's the elect part, and in how our salvation plays out. That's the exile part. Even if that means, by the way, persecution, as it did in 1 Peter. And both of these profound truths, that God is sovereign in both of those things, is meant to encourage us as a believer. In that, in them, we are reminded of God's love for us, of God's power in and around us, and God's presence with us, no matter the circumstances. So let it strengthen and encourage you today. Let it strengthen and encourage you. So that is who wrote 1 Peter and to whom it was written, but why was 1 Peter written? Certainly, as we just discussed, this letter was meant to be a reminder and a source of encouragement, but there is more to it, as we see in verse 2. It reads, In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So let's first look at in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is really a church word. It's certainly a biblical word, but it often gets lost in its meaning. And really what it is is the outworking of being the elect. Sanctification is the outworking of being elect, of being a believer. Sanctification is the process of becoming who God said you are from the moment that he elected you. So I've said it this way before, and I hope that it's helpful for you too. On November 6, 1999, I was declared to be Sheila's husband, set apart for her. And I have spent the last 23 years learning what it means to be who I was declared to be in 1999. And I will spend our remaining years together continuing in that process. Believe me, sanctification is like that. I'm no less a husband, but I'm learning what it means to become one. We are no less elect or chosen, but we're learning what it means through sanctification to be. Election 
is the idea of God choosing you before the foundation of the world. Justification is God fulfilling the work of election in you through faith in Christ. And sanctification is the process of becoming who God says you already are in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. And notice in verse 2 the part that each member of the Trinity plays in our salvation. Do you see it? The foreknowledge and election of God the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Peter has reminded his readers who they are in Christ, elect exiles. And now he's going to tell them what God is doing to them, in them, and for them through every circumstance. That's where the rest of 1 Peter is going. Their current persecution, by the way, being most primary in Peter's mind. Do you know, my friends, that everything that happens to us at the very least is something that God has allowed. Everything that happens to you and me at the very least is something that God has allowed, but in most cases, listen, it is something God has ordained. Well, why? Why do bad things as we see them happen? Why do anything happen to us or to others? according to these verses, it is for our sanctification, for our being built up, for the process of becoming who God says we already are, the process of our holiness and our purification and our maturity and our growth in Him. And always and first and foremost, for the purpose of His glory. That's the why. If you ever find yourself asking why about anything in this life, The answer is always, at least, and first and foremost, his glory. His glory. He is after his name, not ours. He is after his kingdom being built, not our understanding of it. Do you remember Romans 9, verse 17 that I read for you earlier? This is to the contrary, it's to the negative, but the same idea is true. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That is why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it is also why he gives us a new one. Continuing in verse 2 of 1 Peter. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Christ. Obedience to Jesus Christ, my friends, is a mark of those who have been elect and those who are being sanctified. But to be clear, listen to this closely, obedience is not a prerequisite for salvation, but it is evidence of salvation. Obedience is not a prerequisite for salvation, but it is certainly evidence of it. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All of that is election. Verse 10. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all of that, my friends, is sanctification and obedience. Now, where we can get into trouble is by failing to understand how election and justification live in concert with sanctification and obedience. We will generally embrace one and potentially ignore the other. Some say, well, if I'm elect, if I'm justified, and it's all by grace, it shouldn't matter how I live. And conversely, some will say, well, I certainly must need to live a holy, sanctified life of obedience to prove or to earn my election and justification. But the reality of it is, my friends, that God's grace is necessary for both. His grace is necessary for election and justification, and His grace is just as necessary for sanctification and obedience. So we get credit for neither. We take no credit for our salvation, and we take no credit for the process through which we are being sanctified and made holy. God's grace is responsible for all of it. By God's grace and through faith, we are made elect and we are saved. But in the same way, God's gra- by God's grace, we live obediently according to who we are in Christ. Friends, by God's Spirit, Christ's life not only saves us from sin and death, but it also enables and empowers us to let Christ live his life in and through us through obedience to him. You don't not need grace ever, ever. And evidence, my friends, of being elect is found in one's desire for and growing maturity in holiness and obedience to God. In both, we find the certainty of our election. So how I personally came to find certainty in my own salvation and election was twofold. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. First and foremost, I realized that I brought nothing to my salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I brought nothing to my own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. The diagnostic question that we often ask or others will often ask, are you going to heaven when you die? That answer for me moved from being in the first person to being in the third person. It was no longer, well, because I. It was because he. Because he. Jesus Christ was and is my and your only hope. If your answer to do I know Jesus, am I going to heaven, begins with something you have done, you've missed it. You have missed it. But if your answer is, by the grace of God alone, because of Christ alone, you got it. You got it. Second, my assurance came perhaps more practically through realizing that I had a growing distaste for sin and for disobedience where I once either ignored my sin or I justified my sin, my gosh, was I good at that. I was now 
keenly more aware of my sin and was growing in my desire to be rid of it. And I'm continuing in that process every day. But I think that that's extremely significant. Examine yourself by asking questions like, do I recognize and hate my sin more than I used to? When I sin, am I running from God or am I running to God? And do I desire to love and live for God today more than I did yesterday? Answers to those kinds of questions reflect our heart and our affections for God. Much better, by the way, than what others may see or not see in us. Because God my friends, is not after begrudging submission or surface obedience. He is after hearts that want to love him, to submit to him, and obey him out of a desire to worship him. And that, my friends, is the kind of heart that God gives. Finishing up in verse 2 of 1 Peter, we continue with this very same idea. It reads, In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Sprinkling with his blood. What in the world does he mean by that? (laughs) I had that question, so it's okay if you had that question too, and I'll share a little bit about what I discovered about that idea. There is really one place in Scripture that seems to best highlight what Peter is referencing here, and it is found in Exodus 24, where Moses gathered all of Israel before him, reminding them of the words that God had given to them. And in response, they declared in verse 3, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses, according to their response, then built an altar and offered sacrifices to God. And he took half the blood and threw it against the altar. So we'll pick it up from here in verse 7 of Exodus 24. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. A covenant. An oath a pact made in blood. That's what's happening here, and it was a very common practice in ancient cultures. In this case, it was a covenant made between God and his people. God promised to be faithful to them, and the people promised in response to be obedient. Symbolized in the sprinkling of blood on the altar, that's God's part, and blood being sprinkled on the people. That was their part. So here's why Peter brought this up and used this phrase in verse 2. As a Jew, Peter knew full well that obedience was extraordinarily necessary if a covenant were to hold up. And Jesus Christ, being fully man and fully God, on behalf of we the elect, fulfilled God's part of the covenant by remaining faithful, and he fulfilled man's part of the covenant by being obedient unto death on our behalf. So he fulfilled God's part in being faithful, and he fulfilled our part 
in being obedient unto death. And where we were and are disobedient, we are given the obedience of Christ. We are seen obedient even in our disobedience in Christ. Through the faith that he has given us to believe and his finished work on the cross, washed in the blood of Christ, not sprinkled on by the blood of bulls and goats. As elect exiles, friends, our part of the new covenant is obedience, and God's part is being faithful to forgive us when we do not. When we are disobedient, God keeps his side even though we have failed to keep ours. So he made the covenant, established the covenant, and in the person of his son fulfilled the covenant on God's behalf and on our own. That's what makes our election secure. That's what makes our election secure. God has given us a new everlasting identity that is rooted in Christ and who he says we are. We are the elect chosen by God, meaning if we did nothing to cause God to choose us and we didn't, we can do nothing that would make him unchoose us, right? We are secure in him. In addition to being elect, we are also exiles in this world, but not of this world. So we are free to put our hope in the heaven that we were made for and our God who dwells there. That's where our hope and our security lies. And it is through embracing this identity that we are sanctified, called to obey, and able to endure whatever we may face, including hardships and persecution, by the way, for that same identity and the faith that accompanies it. When the day of persecution comes we are able to endure it because we know that we are elect and we know that we are exiles with a future home to look forward to and that our hope is not in what is happening in the here and the now. So Disciples Church, do you know who you are and who you belong to? Do you know it? Is your identity rooted in God or in someone or something else? And if you are among the elect, is there evidence in your life of growing sanctification and obedience? No matter how small, no matter how long it feels like it's taking. And where you fail, are you trusting in the one who established and fulfilled an eternal covenant on your behalf? Or are you trusting in you and your ability to fix it? Peter finishes verse 2 by reminding us that it is God's grace that makes any and all of this possible, as we've talked about this morning. And God's peace is the result. When you have experienced God's grace, you know God's peace. If you are his elect, may grace and peace be multiplied to you both today and in the days and weeks to come. And if you're not sure of his election in your life, May today be the day that you come to know his grace, his peace, and his choosing as he continues to pursue you and lead you into all that he has determined beforehand for you to be and for you to do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we 
stand amazed at who you are, what you have done, and all that you have given to us in your grace, your love, and foreknowledge. May we find great, great joy in knowing that you have chosen us according to your mercy, and because of that same mercy, you will not unchoose us. Would you give us certainty in our election today? Father, for anyone among us who may not yet believe, would you help them to know that their presence here today among your people, having heard your gospel, is strong, strong evidence of your relentless loving pursuit of them They are here because you have brought them here. Help them to not turn away from you, but instead help them to draw near, even as it is you who draws them. Father, as your elect, we have become also exiles, and this world is not our home. Help us to not find our comfort, security, our identity in anything that this world may offer us. Lord, darker days are coming where any and all of those things may be stripped away from us, just as it was for those who received Peter's letter. So would you strengthen us and encourage us and convict us of who we are in you, so that when the day of persecution comes, we will be untouchable and free in Christ, even as we proclaim him to an unbelieving world. God, our hope is in you. Be glorified in us today. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen.